everyone. Welcome to the Genetic Engineering and Society Center's weekly seminar series. Uh, my name is Don Rodriguez Ward, and I co-facilitate uh, this seminar series with Jennifer Baltzagar. I see there are a number of new faces, so I thought it'd be good for us to introduce ourselves. Uh, we're very excited about this week's speaker. And before we have our Ag Biofuse uh, fellow introduce him, I just wanted to uh, say a few reminders and also leave some space if there are any updates or announcements. So for some activities, uh, tomorrow is the Envisioning Urban Futures uh, event from six to nine o'clock at the Duke Energy Hall in Hunt Library. And that's part of the Longview project. So I know a number of you were interested in going to that. If you haven't received a calendar invite, uh, please let me know and I'm I'd be happy to forward that information to you. Uh, also, we have our professional development workshop series this Friday, so it's going to be the second of our workshop series, and we are going to be with the Global One Health Academy plus Genetic and uh, Genomics Academy, and then Ag Biofuse Fellows are invited to this Expanding Your Network seminar, uh, actually a workshop, and it's going to be from 9.30 to 11.30 at the College of Veterinary Medicine. So every uh, month, we are rotating where these workshops will be held. And so this month, it'll be at CVM. So I will in, I will send out some more information. I know there are a number of you that have confirmed, but just to recommend that we have three great speakers uh, with us. And so I, I really highly recommend that you all come out and also meet some of these other cohort fellows. And uh, Nick Lotion from Ag Biofuse, I'm going to ask you to come in and introduce our speaker. Yeah. Thank you. Hey everyone, uh, I'm pleased to introduce Dr. Zach Froelich, who is joining us today. Dr. Froelich is an associate professor at, his, at the Professor of History of Technology at Auburn University. Uh, his work focuses on the ways that science, law, and markets shape popular understandings of food risk and governance. Dr. Froelich earned his PhD in history, anthropology, and SDS from MIT. And he has traveled and worked internationally as a Spain Fulbright Fellow and as a postdoc at the Korean Advanced Institute of Science and Technology in South Korea. He has also worked on agricultural biotechnology, helping Oxfam America assess the socioeconomic impact of transgenic cotton on resource poor farmers. His new book, From Label to Table, with a really cool picture, as we can all see, uh, <laughs> uh, is yeah, From Label to Table, Regulating Food in America in the Information Age is available today. Without further ado, thank you. Okay, well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Don and Jen, for organizing this and, and inviting me to be a part of this. Um, I'm very interested in the kind of multi or interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary opportunity here uh, and learning about this. Uh, originally, when I uh, was invited to do this talk, I didn't expect the book to yet be out. It wasn't supposed to come out until November, but today it officially is released, um, and I have copies. Uh, I didn't. I would normally have them brought here, but if so, if someone wants to buy a copy off of me, I'm more than happy uh, to do that. Um, and my, my, I am a historian, but I am also a science and technology studies scholar, and so I wear two hats. And this book is very much a product of both of those. Um, I. Imagine this to be a group that was interested in food policy. So I framed this in sort of introduction to what I talk about in the book more from the point of view of how history informs where we are today with policy. And, and it has been kind of incredible in the last year or so how much activity there has been at the FDA on labels and standards. Um, they started revisiting their uh, milk 
and yogurt standards, something that had been dormant and not an issue for several decades now. Uh, they uh, recently proposed uh, a new definition for healthy. All of these are gonna come back in the story I tell um, because there's sort of interesting back history to all of this. Um, the kind of funnest thing I wrote an op-ed about is the reconsidering the milk definition to incorporate plant-based alternatives. Um, there's been a big sort of public hubbub about that. Um, and then they have started coming out with new ideas about front of package labeling um, with dietary guidance statements. And all of this activity was probably, has probably been the result of the kind of um, negative public relations they received over uh, the recent infant formula shortage. Um, people were very unhappy with how long it took the FDA to respond. Um, that led to a report that came out uh, last year um, that they invited, the FDA invited the, this organization to do this study where it was basically saying, what's wrong with the, the human food program at the FDA? What can they do to fix this? Um, so this has been sort of the internal institutional explanation for why now there's suddenly all this activity. Um, and then they've recently uh, invited feedback on their dietary guidance statements uh, and then um, as well on sugar. Um, so there's a lot of activity happening here. Um, what I'm going to do today is provide a kind of back history to this. And in this diagram, what you can see is largely speaking what my book describes. You have uh, two very different styles of regulation uh, starting in the 1930s, but really from the 40s to the 1960s. The FDA implements a lot of public policy through food standards, and I'll explain what those are. Um, then in the 1970s, it pivots uh, and they start focusing on. Uh, labeling, and in particular, informative labeling, such as uh, nutrition labeling and ingredients panels. And part of the reason they change is because of problems they have in the 1960s with all of these new diet food products that don't really work in the old system. And they start changing their attitude. They don't want to get pulled into debates about whether these are legitimate or not. Instead, they're saying, we're going to inform consumers and let consumers decide for themselves. Um, in my work, I often call this an informational turn because one of the things I'm interested in the book is what happens when you focus on the label and information as the site of solving a lot of public policy concerns. Um, one of the things I say, uh, this comes from talking with philosophers and food study scholars, um, food can be about food, food can be about eating, which is a little bit differently. And then I once had a philosopher tell me, no, you don't do eating, I do eating, you do reading. And the point she was trying to make is that understanding food through reading is a different kind of experience than understanding food um, in terms of preparing it, even buying it. And one of the things that I'm interested in is how does that happen um, in terms of a regulatory concern? But I talk about this as information environments. Um, and one of the things that you can see along a lot of policymakers is that they know consumers have these different information sources um, some of them are interpersonal, some of them are more formal in terms of media or in terms of what they're reading in cookbooks and diet advice books. Um, and obviously the food label becomes a really important interface on all of this. Um, so uh, part of the, the book, what the book is trying to do is sort of say, how did the food package become this key interface 
in a much broader food system um, and, and sort of linking consumption and production. And then how did regulators get pulled into saying what producers could or couldn't say, what they thought was important for consumers. Um, and one of the reasons why the FDA focuses on uh, the package is because uh, first of all, in the original 1938 Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act, um, they don't have a lot of on-site inspection powers, particularly for the kinds of issues that I'll be talking about with nutrition and health. Um, also, it's just very difficult to send people out to make sure people, the producers are doing what they say they do. It's much easier to basically treat what they put on the package as a kind of accountability device. And so they start focusing on the package as a way of affecting production um, and reaching consumers at the same time because it's just more expedient. Uh, and so then you have a sort of series of legislations and also a lot of court cases and, and policy decisions by the FDA that focus on the package and rules about what, what can be said there, where it can be said. And uh, two important things come out of this approach to the label. Uh, first of all, product classification is a big part of my story, and I'm going to explain this more, but the Food and Drug Administration does both foods and drugs. They're very different products in terms of the, the regulatory standards. Um, and so whether something is a food or a drug becomes a big question. Um, and then second, for certain products like drugs, they, they decide they want to make sure that consumers uh, have, are gatekeepers. Um, the FDA has been described as a gatekeeper, but also a physician or a doctor, a pharmacy is a kind of gatekeeper for those markets. Um, and so establishing gatekeepers becomes a really important uh, part of, of how they make sure that, that consumers are getting the information they need about safety for, for those goods. Um, okay, I'm not going to go over all of this, but this is just simply to say that in parallel to the story I'm talking about food, you have a story about drugs. Um, where the FDA is trying to sort of develop rules about how people get access to them. Um, this involves things like um, making sure that the people who make them are reputable uh, in terms of deciding which ones are licit versus illicit drugs, um, prescription versus over-the-counter, um, or even things like supplements, which later become kind of not like a drug and, and less regulated. Uh, what I will say here, just to kind of focus the story as it relates to food is that you have um, the, an effort to develop a clear boundary between what are food products and drug products. Historically, that was not actually common. Historically, people eat food for health reasons. Um, a lot of dietetic markets 200 years ago would involve things that today we consider to be spices and foods. We wouldn't consider them to be drugs. Um, and in the early 1900s, you have physicians organizations like the American Medical Association saying, um, you can't sell these things or you can't market these things in our journal. And if you market these things and we know about it, we won't let you advertise in our journal. And this is a way that the uh, AMA basically starts policing this boundary between what's a food and a drug. The FDA also gets involved in this. Uh, there's a court case in the 40s where they, they basically get the court to agree that they can remove a product as misbranded if it was sold as a food, if it's making any kind of health claim because they then say actually by, by implication, it's actually a drug. Um, and then you have at the same time in the 60s and 70s, efforts to put strict rules about prescription drugs, pre-market approval, um, and the requirement of access to those things through doctors. So again, the story about food is very much being shaped by an effort to make the rules for drugs really 
uh, strict and, and regulated. Uh, meanwhile, they're developing food standards um, where their approach is uh, to publish um, you know, in the Federal um, Register, they'll publish a kind of list of ingredients that are approved for that drugs. Um, sometimes they'll have rules about the process for them. Um, the metaphor for the standards is kind of like a recipe. They'll, they'll talk about it as if it's a recipe. It's not like a recipe that you can actually make the food out of it, um, but it does have these um, ranges of ingredients and the kinds of processes used in this. And they are going to do this for all mass-produced packaged foods. And they have, in the early years, public hearings where anyone who has stakes in this can get pulled in uh, and kind of present evidence for what they think consumers want for that food, or in the case of industry, what they think is important for it. On standard foods, on the label, you would have the identity, the name, right? Tomato soup or such. And I always have this Andy Warhol painting in the background for this to say that as much as this was a kind of satire of how that worked, it was actually presenting the, the kind of philosophy behind it. Consumers didn't need to know anything more than the name of the product to know what they're getting. Um, and in fact, health information ingredient panels were kept off those. If they were standard, you wouldn't have an ingredients listing um, because you wouldn't need it, right? Okay, now uh, the fun part of the book is that you have lots of problems that are created by trying to create out standards that in theory are about customary foods, but in practice, we're at a moment where a lot of foods, especially for mass markets, are being produced in factories, um, being scaled up in ways that's not at all like how you know, mom or grandma or whomever is cooking this food. And so you have a bunch of court cases where the FDA is tested on this new system. Um, you have non-standard foods being put in the market uh, cream cheese that's low fat um, didn't meet the standard for cream cheese. Um, so the FDA says, all right, we'll, we'll create a new standard that we'll call Neufchatel. And this is funny for anyone who knows uh, Neufchatel is a French cheese. Uh, American Neufchatel had nothing to do with the actual French version of it. They just kind of made up the name um, and this for the standard. Uh, and the cheese producer said, this is ridiculous. There's no such thing as Neufchatel like this. And the court said, no, if the FDA creates the standard, it now exists um, and they can do this. Um, Similarly, there are debates about vitamin enrichment. Uh, the FDA doesn't want companies bombing foods with vitamins, um, and companies are upset about this because it's, there's an opportunity there. Uh, and the initially courts support the FDA has the right um, to restrict this. Um, and it, 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 it permits certain kinds of enrichments, but then doesn't allow enrichments or level higher levels than others. But there are limits as well. So uh, there's a great case in 1951 where a company labels its jam, which has a lower amount of fruit in it, um, imitation jam. And it's very clear about this. And the FDA removes it anyway, because it says this is competing with the, the more legitimate standard jam products. And the court says, no, if they put imitation on there, then the consumer knows it's not following the standard. And so moving forward, this becomes a way that companies can put out non-standard products. Um, so there's a lot of things like these are a lot of different types of product uh, areas and a lot of different issues arise in them. Um, in the first standards, uh, the FDA uses the ketchup standards to kind of remove the additive of benzoate preserves. Um, in the canned fruit standards, there are debates about whether corn sugar can be used to, since traditionally cane, sugar cane, some people argue, is what consumers expect. Uh, the corn sugar industry succeeds 
um, with the USDA Secretary of Agriculture, who's from Iowa, um, succeeds in getting corn sugar accepted in the standard. Um, debates for bread about vitamin enrichment and then about emulsifiers for making it soft and appear fresh. There was questions about, is that deceiving the consumer or is it a legitimate consumer interest to have that kind of fluffy, fluffy bread? Um, and then for peanut butter, how much percentage of peanuts do you need to have in it? For orange juice, how much of the kind of bricks pulp should be in it? These kinds of questions lead to kind of, in some cases, years long standard hearings. And by the end of the 60s, you have a lot of frustration in industry. Um, and these are some food industry uh, journal cartoons that ran where they start to explore this question. What's going to happen when we innovate foods and we can't get them into the standard? Um, are we going to have to start marking imitation as better? Um, and so they're kind of frustrated with uh, the sort of slow process and the FDA's resistance towards especially health markets and health alternative foods um, because of how it challenges their controls on drugs. This becomes particularly important with a category the FDA created as well in 1938 called special dietary foods. So um, with the discovery of, uh, of that insulin can help diabetics, you have people who before wouldn't have lived long lives. Now they're living long lives, but they need to have low sugar diets. And so huge markets are being created in the 20s and 30s for low sugar, sugar-free products. Um, and the FDA says, since these people are patients with their doctors, they obviously want to have these kinds of products. Um, and this is okay. We'll call these special dietary foods. And the idea was they were for patients. But as many of you can guess, in the 1950s and 60s, company realized we can market this to people who are interested in low sugar diets for other reasons. And the FDA in the 50s is really resistant to this because they don't know, like there's a kind of risk calculus happening where if you're a patient and you're sick and sugar is toxic for you, of course, we'll, we'll accept these additives. But for the healthy population, this is just a kind of scaremongering, right? And there's that kind of cultural resistance to these things. Um, so again, that food drug boundary is one of the reasons why the FDA is really against uh, health information uh, and, and uh, you could say direct to consumer advertising on health questions related to food. But this is also like the golden age of health advertising on foods. Um, and food industries have run into this problem. Uh, Michael Pollan, I'm sure many of you know the name, is this food journalist. And he has this great moment where he's talking about how by the 1950s, um, you can only get people to eat so much. He calls this the fixed stomach problem. Uh, and companies are trying to figure out how can they either get you to eat more of something, like if it's a diet soda, you can drink it and it's just like water, right? Because it doesn't have calories or pay more for the same thing. And so you can sell diet products at a higher price um, because you imagine it giving you some value added. And so there's a big interest in diet food markets, um, especially low calorie diets and low calorie foods. And then at the time, there's a, a new awareness about the link between diet and heart disease and low fat and good fat foods. They're trying to spell these out in advertisements. And I, I think this is really fascinating where you can see them saying like, you all know vitamin C is in orange juice. Well, hey, polyunsaturates are in our, our you know, vegetable margarine. And therefore you should buy our vegetable margarine because um, it's good for you the way vitamin C in oranges is good for you. Um, 
Those of you who are in food studies will recognize this is also an example of reducing foods to nutrition. So there's a lot of literature about what's called nutritionism. Um, and one of the problems I, I definitely think it raises is that um, this is a way in which the food industry is challenging the idea that food is supposed to be natural and traditional. Uh, it's seeing a market of people who are less concerned about that and more interested in this nutritional stuff. Um, and so increasingly, these health campaigns are kind of um, offering processed foods as a kind of opportunity um, for the health conscious in a way that challenges uh, the older traditional food markets. I'll, I'll explain why I think that's important in a second. Okay, so all this is the first half of the book, looking at standards. Here's a kind of chapter outline of the book um, where I'm interested in, like, you have this new packaged food economy, and how does that make it hard to regulate at the, the natu national federal level? Um, and so focusing on the label, focusing on claims becomes a kind of opportunity for the FDA. Um, you have new ideas about who the consumer is, um, what is the assumption of risk, uh, what is the a reasonable expectation of a consumer who is concerned about their health, right? Um, and who is the ordinary consumer? We have all these discussions among uh, lawyers and, and the FDA about this. And then in the third chapter, you have a series of crises that I won't talk about today, where basically the public gets really upset with the FDA. And so the second half is the labeling story, where they start focusing on informative labeling. Uh, and I it's where I'm going to sort of bring this to our discussion to talk about why this is both interesting, but also really problematic um, in terms of solving those public policy concerns. So in the 1970s, the FDA proposes a new system. Instead of relying on standards, what it's going to do now is say, if you want to make a non-standard food, if you want to put a health claim on your food product, we'll allow this with some limitations but then you are required to include a nutrition label. They describe this as voluntary because what they're saying is if you follow our food standard system, you don't have to have this label, but if it's non-standard or if you do a health claim related to it, then you have to have this nutrition information panel. Um, this also means that they're no longer gonna require you to put imitation on those non-standard products unless they see the product as genuinely uh, lower value than uh, what it's a substitute for. Um, and in general, they don't really enforce that. They, there's a moment in the 80s where they experiment with like the substitute uh, sort of language and then they kind of back off. So in terms of enforcement, they basically move away from an imitation label. And also they say, okay, a certain amount of vitamin enrichment, we understand now. Now, here's the thing as a historian, I have to say, um, this is an expansion of the FDA's power, but this is a moment where everyone is really unhappy with government. Uh, historians say the 1970s was the real beginning of the Reagan revolution. You have a lot of interest. How do we get government out of regulating things? And so in a way, even though it looks like they're giving consumers more information, even though it looks like what they're doing is expanding government's regulation on these markets, one of the things I talk about as actually in practice, what they're doing is uh, opening up the market. They're saying this is a market option um, label is in a way you can choose to use this as part of your, your product marketing if you want, um, but we're not imposing this. Um, so it's very much a, a, a response to people's frustration with uh, governments. Uh, there's a great quote uh, where President Carter, who's famous for having a dad who's a peanut farmer, says it should not have taken 12 years and a hearing record of over 100,000 pages 
for the FDA to decide what percentage of peanuts there ought to be in peanut butter. The FDA is getting a lot of negative opinions about this. Um, Miguela talks about how humor is used in her work. Uh, she talks about how humor is used to kind of undermine people taking seriously these food issues. And you can see that a lot in the case of, um, of the FDA's policies. A lot of people saying, why are we wasting resources on this? All right. This is also the moment where the milk standard that was getting reassessed today is introduced. One reason why it didn't create much of a, of a discussion at the time, it, it was basically saying milk has to come from a cow, um, is because really everyone was moving away from standards. Um, and so you have even the dairy industry, um, they have a, in a 1968 study, they have this thing where they say, uh, they're talking about consumers' response to the new substitute dairy markets um, or processed dairy markets. And they say, for many, it was just a step from butter to margarine, from fluid milk to powder milks. And once the imitation milk concept was initially understood, consumers described an even more graduated development. Fresh milk, canned milk, dry processed milk, dry milk with cream to substitute milk with animal fats replaced by vegetables and fruit oils. They're kind of saying, hey, we also don't want to be blocked in by standards anymore. We can start selling our dairy products with all of this new um, substitution of vegetable oils and such. And in this, the change in policy, the FDA includes a new food standard, which is more like a kind of a, a sort of model for how how companies might create new foods called melurine. It's not like anyone went out and started promoting melurine as, as a kind of ice cream, but what it was was an ice cream where the animal fats were removed and vegetable fats were placed in it. And they published this to basically say, this is the kind of product now you might want to try, try out. Big turning point when we're thinking about sort of what is food? This is a moment where the labeling system and the regulators are catching up with the kind of reality among consumers um, that people are not necessarily thinking of food as something that's grown um, you know, and, and cooked in, in the same way. They're starting to think of it as this thing that you can kind of design around certain lifestyles. Um, so food is becoming these interchangeable ingredient parts. Um, in my book, I call this or playfully the plug and play food economy because it's much older than the FDA rules, but you can definitely see how policymakers are increasingly less concerned about where food is coming from and thinking of it more as something that's built and, and, and produced in factories. All right. So then I bring the story to the present. Uh, initially, the FDA doesn't allow disease claims, um, but Kellogg's uh, pushes the envelope on this uh, and starts uh, and makes collaborates with the National Cancer Institute to put uh, its campaign on their cereal boxes, basically saying that fiber may reduce risk of cancer. Um, and then there's also some questions about when does an ingredient cross the line from being a kind of food additive into being drug-like? And the best example of this is that Kellogg's HeartWise has this psyllium fiber um, that has a physiological reaction at levels that would cause a physiological reaction. I'm not gonna say what that is, you can imagine. Um, and the state of Texas takes it to court saying that's a drug, all right? Um, the, the fun thing about this, and all of this leads to a bunch, uh, when the FDA backs off of Kellogg's on the disease claims, other companies start doing this. And by 1989, um, the Secretary of Health and Human Services describes food labels as the Tower of Babel. He's just like, this is really confusing. That's what leads to the 1990s uh, nutrition facts label. The psyllium case is interesting too. It's a natural ingredient but it's not at all natural in Western diets. Um, 
it, it's a it's a type of fiber found in India. Um, it is used in dietetic products in India, but when it's being used in sort of Western cereal to describe it as natural is to play a little bit with what we mean by that, right? Because it's a much stronger uh, fiber in terms of the physiological re reactions um, than the kinds of fibers you'd find naturally in, in, in traditional cereals. All right. And that brings us to like, where did that nutrition facts label come from? Well, in the 1990, you get the Nutrition Labeling um, and Education Act that basically tells the FDA, you have to do something about this. The FDA with legislative authority this time says, we are gonna make this a mandatory label on all foods, not just foods uh, making health claims. It's intended to help solve this food drug problem that they're having because they're gonna make rules about when you can make certain kinds of disease claims, certain kinds of health claims. Um, and one of the people I interviewed who just recently passed away, Berkey Belser, um, he was hired in a design firm and interviewing him was kind of incredible because he said that it really was like a government brand, the way that they designed it. It's black and white. It stands apart from all the colorful advertising. Um, and that branding power of it, he thought was really important. Uh, this is also when they introduced the healthy definition. Um, the interest in public health at the time was really focused on saturated fats as being bad for you. Um, and so that healthy definition really reflected that. And the redefinition today reflects changes in what they think should be the priority of what's healthy. Uh, the fun part about writing this is that you see all different kinds of political interests come out in terms of what was motivating different features of the label. Um, AARP writes in saying, we want you to be careful about font size um, because elderly are really concerned about this and they need to be able to read it and they're worried that that would be gamed. Um, lots of concerns about vitamins in terms of uh, babies, um, the fats uh, for aging men, uh, diabetics associations concerned about sugars um, and hypertension. But you also have a lot of different organizations writing in. Um, Center for Science and Public Interest was very active on this. Um, and then food industry, public health organizations as well. The idea here, and here's where I'm going to start talking about what do we want to use labels to do? The view here is I think the most common view of what a food label is supposed to do. It's, it's a kind of knowledge fix. Um, you're empowering consumers by giving them information. The information gives them insight into what is the product. And I'm gonna challenge that and then we can talk in question and answer if you wanna ask me what I, why I think this is not necessarily correct. Um, but that is very much what's going on when you see the promotion of the Nutrition Facts panel. An alternative view that I get uh, from Berkey Belser, again, this designer, uh, and sorry, he literally just passed away two weeks ago, and it's, it's kind of weird for me, and so I wanted to take a moment to, to recognize the kind of amazing way he understood this level. He was saying that a lot of people focus on how people read the nutrition facts label. There are studies after studies after studies of this, and he says that that actually misses what's really powerful about the nutrition facts label, um, because it's asking you how you comprehend what's on the, on the label. He says the label has a branding power that is subliminal. He says, convention improves comprehension. In other words, something that you see over and over and over again across all media or all packaging gradually becomes iconic, seeps itself into the mind so that you start to understand it and absorb it in ways that supersede reading, right? This is the power of logos and branding. And he's seeing this in this nutrition facts panel. You know, whether you are interested in nutrition information or not, now with this label, everyone just takes for granted that everything has nutritional properties. 
right? So uh, there's been reforms to the label uh, in 2016 um, that did require minor edits. There was also the introduction of trans fats in 2004. Um, each iteration of this label very much reflects the kind of public health concerns of the time. Um, in the 80s, that was the war on fats. In the 2010s, you've seen a lot more focus on added sugars um, and also total calories. Uh, and then in more recent activities, there have been a, a, a more difficult struggle among the FDA about how do you challenge the processed foods? You know, um, because the nutrition label really doesn't distinguish. In fact, in many ways, it, it, it gives an advantage to processed foods because once you put a piece of information on a label, it's easier if you're doing lots of engineering and processing foods, it's easier to change it to match that profile than it is with a traditional food. Um, and so there's this kind of struggle with how do we make it clear that we don't want you saying healthy when it's a highly processed food. All right, uh, I'll go through this quickly for sake of time. But basically, there's been a lot of backlash to this. Uh, some of you nodded your heads when I mentioned supplements. Uh, in 1994, you get the Dietary Supplement uh, Health and Education Act, which basically says none of this applies to supplements. And it's like the Wild West. I'm probably exaggerating a bit, but it's one of the least regulated product categories uh, that the FDA uh, oversees. Um, you have legal pushback uh, using what's called commercial free speech, which is kind of an interesting area of law where Corporations basically say, hey, you're, you're, we have uh, commercial free speech rights on this. And the FDA is trying to have a monopoly over what scientific agreement, right? When in fact, there are other organizations like the National Academy of Sciences who provide uh, information about what is you know, new health information. Um, and then this has been, I think, kind of the ongoing discussion uh, in the 2000s and, and 2010s teens of front of package, right? How, do we, how does this move to the sort of front of the package in terms of uh, information? So at the very end, the last chapter in the book, uh, before the conclusion, I say you have in the 1990s, the FDA and this kind of like, we're liberating consumers with this new nutrition facts panel. But at the same time, there are several other big food labeling debates happening. And the, probably the two biggest um, are GMO labeling, uh, where the FDA is almost saying the opposite. It's like, we don't want to label GMOs. Um, they're substantially equivalent. And then you have the USDA organic, uh, which is interesting because it's a very different type of label. Uh, nutrition facts is about giving you information. Organic is what's called a credence label. Uh, reading the label doesn't tell you anything about what it is. It's about you trusting that the person is says it's, it is what they say it is. Um, so in the GMO labeling, I will just say what I find interesting about this story um, is that here, I think you see a history where labels are used to obfuscate. Uh, it starts where the FDA is basically saying, these foods are substantially equivalent. We don't want you misleading consumers by saying they're distinct in America. Obviously in Europe, a very different story happens where they, they have labeling. Um, I won't talk about sort of first generation versus later generations of GMOs, but they weren't very pro-consumer in these early, early forms. Uh, and then even when the GMO labeling bill happens, where now it's going to require them to be labeled, um, it's at the same time industry introduces smart labels, QR codes, and it's accepted that you can use those instead. And so there's a sociologist who's looking at how, how the companies can bury the GMO labeling in that 
digital labeling process. Um, uh, and then they also use this phrase bioengineered, um, which is probably accurate, but not what people know. And so it's clearly an effort to kind of uh, take away the idea that labeling is about letting consumers be aware of what's GMO. I know some people here, I don't know if they're in the room, but work on CRISPR and, and, I, and I'll, I'll be provocative. <laughs> I don't have a, a strong opinion on it, but I'll be provocative by pointing out like the decision to not include CRISPR and GMO um, necessarily is also a kind of way of obfuscating. Uh, most people intuitively would think of CRISPR as a kind of genetic modification. Um, so the fact that they're being very literal about what the set of tools are that by default count as GMO uh, also reflects this strategy. Um, and I'll say less about organic, I can answer in Q&A, but you have a kind of different way that the label uh, is working in a kind of anti-democratic spirit. Um, as they're mainstreaming organic, what they end up doing, instead of all these things that organic farming as an alternative movement is trying to sort of challenge mainstream industry, uh, instead of saying, let's actually politically lobby for that and improve these things, what they do is provide a kind of opt-out. Like for the people who can afford it, you can now opt out of conventional food by paying this kind of premium. Okay. Uh, and so what you have here in the end of my book is this kind of all of these different labeling initiatives. Um, a consumer who's using the label to make sense of food is having, having to balance very different concerns and very different labels. Um, and you have, a, a, I make this kind of point that you have also some big changes that have happened. You go from using standards to informative labels. You go from the idea of the state as actively litigating on behalf of the consumer and really focused on consumer protection to the state as a kind of information broker, right? We don't decide what consumers want. We just make sure they get the information to make their own decision. Uh, they have a different model of who the consumer is. It's no longer that they're ordinary. It's now that they're informed and actively getting this information. Uh, and, and other kinds of changes. Again, I have this section that I'm really interested to see what policy think about where I kind of argue that there is a logic that comes with using labels as a policy tool with lots of problems. I'm just gonna focus on two. I'm gonna mention again, the idea that information is not always empowering. It can be used to mislead you. Um, this is particularly important when you realize that someone is making a decision about how that information is put on there um, and how it's presented. And this, uh, in a way, it makes us more dependent on those, those people who are making those decisions. And here's where the book, it's not, it's skeptical about labeling because I think that the focus on information labels as a policy tool misleads us in assuming that we're making people more independent and making choices for themselves. Um, and I'm gonna kind of take this point how ultimately this is all about building trust in the food you're getting. Um, and trust is actually about the relationship, right? Trust is not just about proving that the food is what you say it is. It's also about believing that the person making your food is someone that you can trust. Um, and so information gets just thinking about this idea that uh, these labels are a kind of conduit from what the food really is to the consumer, and now they have the information. But actually, in practice, information is more about the person speaking and the person receiving that, and do they, how do they see each other? And so even though we have more and more information about food on labels, you can see more and more dissatisfaction among consumers. It's like we know there's more we could know about the food, and yet 
um, we don't know if we can trust it because again, information is not solving that question of trust. All right, so that's my sort of broad introduction to the book. Um, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Thank you. For the people online, if you'd like to join in the discussion, use the raise your hand function or type your um, question in the chat and I'll read it for you. Yeah. Okay. Um, I've written a bit on the national bio and disclosure standards and some of the genome and I appreciate the report. Um, Obviously, I use the exact same word in a 2018 article about how this is not meant to inform consumers, but rather to increase the discussion with the markets and the lab. They CRISPR, or unless the DNA, foreign DNA is yeah. a lot more interested in process now. But how do counter arguments I've heard a lot about? Um, you know, who they think uh, the FDA can't deal with it because it's not a scientific or safety or a nutritional thing. Uh, how do you counter that argument? I mean, I've countered it from an ethical standpoint. Yeah. So it's right to treatments. But how do you? All right, so Jennifer Kuzman, right? I'm speaking to because I'm they're picking up here is asking a question about the bioengineered labeling as a kind of obfuscation. And how would I respond to the argument that the FDA makes that it can't get involved in those values discussions? Yeah. It's only focused on narrowly on safety. I mean, I, there's an academic answer I have readily for you as a science studies scholar, which is that this is a classic kind of power play that um, the FDA, but not only the FDA makes about saying, about disguising values behind this idea of what's a safety issue versus what's a values issue. Um, that's the kind of academic answer, uh, not maybe helpful for policy people because, of course, it's effective. Um, people believe this idea that there is a science independent from values. Um, SDS scholars don't. And in a way, one of the things I talk about in the book is there's a geography of labeling that happens between something like the organic label and the nutrition label. The nutrition label, the FDA really pushes as a government label that is a disclosure of facts, right? The organic label, the USDA recognizes it's not about science. Um, this is the values in the communities that people think is organic. Um, and that's why it's a voluntary label ultimately, right? So there is a kind of way in which law and science are coming together to create this idea about what are facts and objective versus what are values and then what can the FDA, at least as it claimed, what can it do or not do? But again, all that's kind of like a, all to say that when the FDA is doing that, it is being smartly disingenuous. Um, also, in the 1970s, when they introduced the nutrition information label, um, you know, the imitation label would still be used on economically inferior products. So they're basically endorsing the diet heart thesis. If you reduce the fats, you wouldn't be imitation. You just have to have nutrition label. In a way, they're endorsing that health message. At the time, that was a values claim. It's become so conventional now that it's easy to say, oh, what they did was scientifically correct. But actually, there are there's a homemakers association that takes them to court 
and says, there are so many other things that make a food wholesome and nutritious. And this approach is not answering those. And so by doing this, the FDA is picking a side and they're picking the side of processed, um, low fat foods instead of, you know, the standards that for the homemakers were much more broad. Uh, so again, like, I think the simple answer is that, yes, they're being a little bit, they're being very misleading with that. From a policy baker, how do you answer them in a way that would change it? Um, I think right now they're struggling with ultra processed foods um, and how they're trying to rework. They have this dietary guidance rule that they're exploring where they're saying um, an ultra processed food, um, how can they make claims about whole foods that are also health claims? Um, and I think there's where they're going to start struggling with that question, like uh, basically a picking a side on these values questions. Um, I think in the bioengineering, the, the, the U.S. government just does not want to encourage people to be concerned about that. And so they historically resist anything that encourages people to distinguish between those. And in their, in their defense, there are plenty of very artificial food additives, which raise interesting risk questions. As a practical matter, the reason why people focus on GMOs is because they also raise lots of issues and it's just gotten traction politically. So the question is, when is it a public health issue that hidden values are encouraging misinformation? And what obligation does the policymaker have? It's a great question. Um, I'm not sure I'm going to have an answer to it, but I want to illustrate why it's a great question. <laughs> and maybe that'll help you then think of why it's hard to answer it. Uh, in advertising, there is this thing called puffery. I remember when I was doing this project and I started learning about the legal concept of puffery, I was just like, of course. Um, if you say, stealing this from Elf, if you say, I make the world's best coffee, all right, that is puffery. And no government in the world can come in and tell you, hey, that's misleading. That's misinformation. You know, how do you know it's the world's best coffee? And so that's protected. That's a protected kind of advertising speech. Um, if you say I make the world's healthiest coffee, now a public health institution like the Food and Drug Administration can rightfully come in and say, wait a second. Um, now you're misleading the consumer. So. I think the answer to your question, and it would be specific to every case, comes down to how those public health institutions understand the claim affecting the consumer's safety and the consumer's health. Again, very much a values question because it, it has to do with what you think health is. Um, you know, food can be really good for your mental health, but when they're talking about health, they're not talking about that. They're talking about physiological kinds of health. Um, but you're, but they actually have this struggle about what is the line in puffery versus the line where it's starting to affect public safety and health and public health. I'm not sure. I'm not sure who to call on because you both went up at the same time. Really, and early on, you talk about the 1960s the dietary fads were. Uh, sort of informing this response from the USDA. Mm -hmm. And so 
irony here is that it seems like they're making these um, agreed upon scientific facts to obfuscate the values, but in response to things that are happening in the state. And it's, so I'm curious what you think is driving the periodic reforms that we're seeing. Mm. Is it new science or new understanding of the science, or is it really all the things that are playing out across all these? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so I, a, an honest answer about how the diet heart thesis plays out in this story would have a kind of chicken and egg aspect. Um, there is a change in how people are thinking about food and health that is in some sense a response to big demographic changes. People are living longer. They have access to more food, and scientists start realizing that people are dying of heart attacks instead of infectious diseases. And they start asking the question, why are they dying of heart attacks? And they figure out, among many reasons, you know, our affluent diets, they call them like affluent diets, are why. And so there's a moment in the 50s and 60s where they certain sort of scientists, really progressive scientists, are like, we need to do something about this. We need to change our diet. And that's a challenge. It's food space people call this the nutrition transition it's a challenge because it raises this kind of negative campaign um, a perfectly healthy person now suddenly has to worry about what they're eating and that's very different than infectious disease health, public health campaigns where you're dealing with sick people you're dealing with marginalized people so now you have these public health campaigns where you're targeting affluent people otherwise healthy people and saying change it um so one answer to why suddenly this becomes a problem is that you have this new kind of preventative approach to health and this question about who's responsible for that. Um, is the individual someone who should be responsible for that by changing their habits? Um, the other side of this, which makes it an issue for the FDA, is you have um, industries already making industrial processed foods. And so they see this and they're like, oh, we can just retool our recipes a bit and start producing foods for these markets. Um, and I, I couldn't tell you which came first in that story. I can only say that industry is very successful in folding in negative nutrition into how it starts marketing foods. Um, and so the FDA legitimately struggles with, is this bad public health sort of scaring consumers into spending their money on these expensive diet foods? or is this the new kind of reality that consumers have more money? They want have more expectations about their health. Um, they're also tired of us telling them what's good or bad food. And so we need to let them decide. Um, the kind of hidden history there is that, of course, um, heart disease is a big problem for not just affluent people, but also for poor people. And so some of the assumptions about informing consumers to fix this are based on an idea of a consumer has the resources and time to read up about their diet. And we still have a heart disease problem, even though we have labeling and food products that are supposed to fix that. I think Ashton and then. Um, I love, of course, I love this part when it's Food and drugs and how that distinction got really that inflection point, a little bit. But as everybody knows, um, 
foods and even animals to raise that, sort of blur that line. Again, drug approach to regulating to animals. So that's like cattle, the salmon. And I know maybe you may not really be part of your story, but I would just be interested in your thoughts on how this fits into um, thinking about information yeah i i think as a short-term strategy obfuscation works uh as a long-term strategy i'm not so sure and outside my own work but in my teaching i talk about this with meat as a good example um, Auburn has a meat lab and my first year I showed up, I teach a class called food and power and they saw that and they're like, come talk to us about meat and power. And they're very pro industrial meat production. And I subtitled it. Why consumers are anxious about meat. And when they saw that, they were like, wait, no, we like meat. And I was like, I get that. <laughs> but I talked about ag gag laws, for example. Um, and one of the things I said was, you know, Americans have forgotten where meat comes from. And I don't mean forget, like they, in the back of their minds, they know. But I mean that when I take students on a tour of the meat lab, they're shocked by what they see, physically ill. And of course, if you live in Europe, it's like butchered animals are there and they're visible. And like I, I've seen children's field trips to the butcher where like the butcher then talks about cutting up an animal. And so the difference that I see and I told and that was, was the point of this talk was if you hide where the food is coming from, people are going to be anxious. That's just kind of like broadly true. And the more you hide it, the more anxious they get. Even if the idea is that you um, don't want other people to be misleading about that. Um, and so I think that's a long-term, I think it's a failing strategy. And I think a lot of what happens in these labeling debates reflects that too. I think people get really focused on the idea, hey, we give you the information, but ignore that that's not what consumers are actually seeking. When they're really seeking a trust that where their food comes, and they often don't feel like these institutions are really addressing that. We have a question online already. Um, from Alexandra Zamora. Oops, sorry for butchering your name. I apologize. Um, they're at the Sanford School of Public Policy at Duke, and they ask current front of the package labeling in the EU is not working properly due to lack of including processing as criterion in the algorithm generating a grade product. Yeah. If European Union manages to find a common definition for minimally and highly processed and include it in the algorithm, do you think it makes sense for the EU policymakers to push for revisiting the front of the package labeling and make it mandatory for member states? Also, with a connection to the fact that FDA has been working on the regulation on the front of packaging labeling in the US. Yeah, so this is the dietary guidance is about this front of package initiative to try to figure out how can they encourage make health claims about non-processed foods more visible and, and kind of come up with standards for that um, in terms of what are said. Um, I should probably have a ready-made answer about my opinion about front of packaging labeling. Um, watching the history of the side panel not solve the problems it was set out to make, um, in fact, resulting in a lot of gaming of how food products are made makes me feel like front of package labeling as a kind of focus is just simply going to cause another round of gaming um, where people read very narrowly the rule about what they can or cannot say 
and lose the spirit of this. The best example of that is the clean label. So this is independent of front package label, but the clean label movement is like this idea that if you have less and less ingredients, it's somehow more natural. But in practice, that's just not true. Um, that in practice, sometimes less ingredients isn't more natural or less processed. Um, so I think there's a way in which you can expect that any of these food labeling systems, there's going to eventually be some kind of gaming. I would say the key is your enforcement strategy. And, and if you really wanted to make a change, you would staff these agencies. Uh, instead of assuming that putting it on the label solves the problem, because now everyone has the information, if you actually said, we're going to staff the agencies with the ability to say, nope, that is not the product that we want to see in the market. Um, and then either litigate it or, or draw public attention to it, or you know, in some form or another, um, then you might actually see people start gaining confidence in the label. So I think part of the mistake I see, it's not that I'm anti-labeling. Labeling is clearly important. It should be a central part of any kind of reform. It's that I think labels are often treated as the end of the solution, when in fact, to be effective, they really do require a staff of dedicated people saying, no, this is not what was supposed to happen. And so I'd say that all the front of packaging stuff has focused on that question when I think it really should be thinking about implementation. Sorry, there's a question over here. What's the point about labeling moving forward in case don't like what the FDA is doing and makes their own rules? So no, I'm just you know what? Um, we mean, kids with three eggs. Yeah. And some of them are, you want to be two eggs. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I talk about this briefly. I became aware of this with the nutrition label. Um, it's called preemption, this idea um, that a federal law potentially could preempt state laws. And this often is one of the reasons why industry is invested in federal legislation, because they then want to preempt the more restrictive state level. Uh, so the or the GMO labeling law is very likely an example of that. Like the industry said, okay, we have states who are starting to enact very strict GM labeling rules that we don't like. So we will get behind a federal law um, that is at least better. Uh, initially, the nutrition facts label was supposed to do this too. Um, California passed Proposition 65, a very stringent anti-carcinogen law. And a, I, I haven't seen this in California, but next time I go there, I'll look where you'll just see warning label, warning, not just on food, but everywhere saying there's a potential carcinogen here on like sites, but also on food. And initially the industry said, well, hey, if we get behind this new nutrition labeling law, maybe we can get preemption there to remove the Proposition 65. And that didn't happen. Um, all I would say is that this is the interesting thing about the United States, about how our legal system works, that sometimes state level activism, legal activism is an approach towards reform. Um, and sometimes it creates an incentive or pressure on the national uh, standards as well. Okay, I'm going to have to jump in because it's one o'clock and we need to let people who uh, need to move on to their next appointment go. But if you um, have signed up for lunch, we will be shifting into that and everything right here. So hang around and Zach will be available to answer more questions. So again, thank you everyone. Um, thank you all so much. Thank you. Um, next week, we're going to hear people.